And with the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, I, I think this, the stories of the soldiers and the principles that they held so dearly give us an understanding of what it was that our ancestors went through so that we could have the country that we have today. This is First Person. Welcome to this week's edition. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us now as we meet historian and author Daniel Vermilia, who has just completed his second book on the Civil War. You'll meet Daniel in just a moment. One resource you'll discover on our website is an archive of past interviews, which you can stream and listen to at any time. Or if you prefer, take First Person with you on the go in the car or as you travel elsewhere. You can download our podcast from iTunes. But perhaps the easiest way to listen each week is by using your smartphone and downloading our free app. Look for First Person Interview in both the Apple and Google Play stores. And just before we meet today's guest, please take an extra moment online to say thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company who make this program possible. Follow the links at firstpersoninterview.com. Well, Daniel Vermilia has always been fascinated by stories of faith and courage coming out of America's Civil War. He's written two books touching on some of these war stories, books we'll mention during our conversation today. Daniel joined me on the phone for this interview. Well, I grew up in uh, northeast Ohio, east of Cleveland, and for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by history, especially the American Civil War. Um, I guess I could say I got it from my family first and foremost. I remember as a little kid uh, going back to Canton, Pennsylvania, where my dad grew up, and having conversations there with my grandpa in the back of his house and talking about the American Civil War and specifically talking about the Battle of Antietam, which was fought in September of 1862. And our conversations frequently came back to Antietam because of a or my ancestor fought at the battle there. My my great 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 grandfather was oh. there. So we would we would talk of that often and, and his story and I learned about him and what he did and I learned that he had actually died in the battle. He was killed in action there. Is that right? And wow. So that just kind of grabbed me uh, from an early age. And uh, when I was nine, my parents took me on a trip to uh, Gettysburg National Military Park in Antietam National Battlefield. And uh, at that point, I was hooked. Yeah, I've been to both parks. I've spent more time at Antietam than I did Gettysburg so far. But what incredible experiences! So uh, that that hooked you as a as a child, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I vividly remember uh, being at Antietam and and walking across Burnside Bridge and through the Bloody Lane. And I remember driving into Gettysburg, uh, coming from the west. We came in on the western side of town on on Route Thirty and. After hours and hours in the car, seeing the monuments on the side of the road, and it was just really, really cool. So I, I always remember that feeling, even even today when I'm out and about on the battlefield. I, I often think about that. Hmm. You know, maybe sometime in the future, you and I could meet there at Antietam. Uh, I come down in that area about once a year. It'd be great to get together and walk uh, across Burnside Bridge and talk about some of these things. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think the best way to learn about history is to actually get out and, and walk the ground, um, you know, walking the trails and, and seeing the sights yourself. It's, it's really, there's no substitute for it. Yeah. I'll come back to your love of history and your experience here in just a moment, Daniel, but talk to me about your faith in Christ. This is something that's very real to you as well. It is, yeah. And it's, 
in some ways, uh, similar to my my love and history, it's it's always been there since I was a little kid. I was raised up in the church, and uh, today my my wife and I go to a Lutheran church in in Hagerstown, Maryland, and uh, it's something that's it's very real to me. It's something that uh, again I I have it through through my family, through the witness and example of my parents and, and grandparents and, and family members, and I kind of tell myself that with everything I do, um, just try to do it all to the, uh, the glory of God. Yeah. Well, you live in a beautiful area there around Frederick and Hagerstown, Maryland. Uh, WCRH is our station there. Some folks are listening to us right now from that station, and uh, I, love, I love that area very, very much. Um, and you intend to pursue this vocationally. I mean, you, you, you have a connection with the National Park Service, and hopefully that'll become an even tighter connection in the future, perhaps. I've worked for the Park Service now for a couple of years, uh, seasonally. I've worked at Antietam Battlefield and uh, now at Gettysburg up in Pennsylvania. And uh, just something I've been really fortunate to do and, and work with some great folks through the Park Service. And it's been uh, just a great way to explore my interest in history and, and uh, tell some stories about what happened at these incredible places. It's really been a great job. That must be a dream come true for you, given, <laughs> given your, your own personal history. I, I tell folks all the time it's a it's a really a great opportunity and really a great blessing just to have the opportunities I've had to uh, work at these sites. Well, we'll talk about your books in a few minutes, but just talk to me about the experience of physically being at these places. I'm sure many of our listeners have been either to Gettysburg or Antietam, and, and uh, we all know the, the sense of uh, sadness many times that we get from being in those places, but what goes on in your heart and mind when you stand there? I think whenever I visit a battlefield, whether it's a park I've worked at or whether it's uh, a battlefield that I'm visiting just in, in my own time, just uh, going to see the sites, um, it's it's always tough to really visualize what really happened there. Um, you go to sites, and today a lot of them are, are these beautiful scenic places, and many folks see these sites as you know places to go run or, or hike. Um, places to get out and explore nature, and and they are all of those things as well, but um, so many of them are preserved because of the terrible events that happened there, and they are preserved with an eye towards making sure that future generations understand those terrible events. So you see the monuments, and you know that those monuments in many cases are from the veterans themselves, and those monuments were put on that spot with that inscription for a reason, because those veterans wanted you to remember what they did there. Yeah. Um, and, and you think about all the soldiers' diaries and letters and things that I've read and and how they're describing these events as some of the worst days or worst moments of their lives, and uh, they they took place on such beautiful scenic landscapes. Um, you know, Pickett's Charge didn't happen in a national park. It happened across farmers' fields in south-central Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And you just think about the civilians whose lives were forever changed by these events, and the families back home, and, and all of these different storylines come together, and they intersect at these places. And there's a lot to think about when you walk across the field. Yeah, you can't rush that experience. You shouldn't rush that experience, should you? You really should take your time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, do you have any formula you follow for telling people to, you know, slow down and take it easy? Well, uh, when I go to sites, I, I normally try to get out and walk as much as I can. Um, a lot of folks try to drive through these battlefields, but I try to encourage folks really to 
get out of the car as much as you can and explore the site. Yeah. And the last time I was at Antinum, the, the sunken road there, no one else was there. And I was all alone. I was able to get out of the car and I was able to walk up and down. And it was early morning, actually, and the, the sunlight was uh, streaming there. And it was just an amazing experience, almost a, a spiritual experience to be a part of that. Yeah, there's certainly just being out in these places and, and all of their, their beauty and all the history that happened there. And sometimes when you're out on the field by yourself, there's certainly a lot of time to think and reflect and, and uh, just connect with the past. Now, tell me about your ancestor who fought at Antietam. What Again, how many great uh, how many greats ago was that? <laughs> well, it's for me, it's three greats. My great-great-great-grandfather. Um, his name was Elwood Rodebaugh, and uh, he was born in Bradford County, PA. And uh, when the Civil War began, he was a shoemaker working in the small town of Canton, which is the same town that my dad grew up in. And uh, he had a wife named Josephine and two young kids named Charles and Ella. And he joined the Union Army in August of 1861. And the thing that always strikes me is that he wasn't drafted. He volunteered to serve. Mm. And when he left home, he was not leaving his family with a whole lot uh, from some of the documents I've been able to see, it it appears as though the family had about $50, and that was that, Um, which, of course, is a lot more then than it is now. uh, But still, $50 and a a milk cow, I believe, is all the family had. And and Josephine, his wife, left behind, she was uh, illiterate, raising two children under the age of five while her husband went off to war. Now, throughout 1862, he saw action in several different battles. And he was actually wounded in the arm in one of them. And during the Maryland campaign in September of 1862, just before the Battle of Antietam, he shaved off a heavy beard of whiskers that he had, according to one of the letters that I've seen. So when he was killed at Antietam, burial parties didn't recognize his body afterwards because he didn't have his beard anymore. Oh. So he was buried as an unknown soldier. And we know he was killed in battle there, but to this day we don't know where he was buried. He was simply buried as an unknown. And uh, the remarkable thing is is that for those who were killed during the Civil War, about one out of every two soldiers killed in action ended up being buried as unknowns. You mentioned the letter or letters. Um, Does your family have those? They're actually uh, letters in his pension file at the National Archives. They are letters that were written after his death by some of the men in his regiment, some of the men he knew, to verify that he had been killed so that his widow could receive a pension, because otherwise she was going to have a very difficult, if not impossible, time raising raising her children. And it was a very common experience after these battles and during the war and even after the war for uh, widows and families to apply for pensions to help with the, the losses that they felt. Our first-person guest today is Daniel Vermilia, and we'll continue this conversation talking about the Civil War in just a moment. This weekly program is produced in cooperation with the Far East Broadcasting Company. Together, we are committed to telling the stories of Christ at work in the nations of the world. FEBC broadcasts the gospel in nearly 50 of those countries, reaching people in over 100 languages, introducing them to God's love and discipling them through God's Word. To learn more about FEBC and its broadcasts, please visit FirstPersonInterview.com and click the banner FEBC. That's FirstPersonInterview.com. My guest on First Person this week is Daniel Vermilia. Daniel is a historian, 
Uh, he's told us the connection with his family in the Civil War, and perhaps uh, you have a connection there that you'd like to pursue. It's interesting to find out about the National Archives. I, I know that the, the collection must be extremely extensive. It's more than just what's at the building we see in downtown D.C., I would imagine. Daniel, is that right? Oh, yeah. They have uh, a couple different satellite locations. They actually have locations uh, throughout the country. The National Archives do a lot of work at different presidential libraries. There are centers, I believe, in St. Louis. Um, outside of D.C., there's there's a center. So they, they have quite a, quite a lot of resources um, to preserving our nation's history. The uh, A lot of the pension files, they're now starting to digitize and put online. Oh. And some of those you can access by going down there, some of them. You can access uh, by doing some online searching, but uh, really the best bet would be to to maybe write to the archives or or head down there to to see what kind of files they might have. Yeah, well, I find that fascinating, and I find it interesting. You're not just an amateur historian; you're the author of a couple of books relating to the Civil War, uh, quite substantive books, I might add. Let's talk about those. Your most recent one is James Garfield and the Civil War. Of course, you're a Buckeye; you grew up in Ohio, so Garfield. Is uh, is a uh, Buckeye or was a Buckeye as well? So talk about uh, James Garfield in the Civil War for a moment. Well, James Garfield is a guy who I kind of think I've known for a long time, and that's because uh, I grew up about 15 minutes away from his house. <laughs> so I've I've always felt like I was growing up in the shadow of his his house, which is now a National Historic Site administered by the Park Service in Mentor, Ohio. Um, when I was born, my parents had a house along the banks of the Chagrin River, which was essentially the same river that Garfield was baptized in oh, as okay. a young man. Yeah, um, it was interesting in reading your book to hear about his his spiritual life uh, long before the Civil War, and of course, long before he became president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was a strong disciple of Christ as a young man. Um, it's a faith that his his parents had, and it was one of these uh, branches of Christianity that grew out of the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, and it was a very strong part of his life. His faith really was a a huge part of his life. Early on as a disciple of Christ in the 1850s, as a young man, he kind of shied away from politics for a while, believing that politics was too worldly, and he had some passages in his diary and and such saying that uh, politics wasn't necessarily for him, which is kind of the odd thing you'd expect a future president of the United States to say. but uh, over time, throughout the 1850s, as events in the country began to spiral more and more towards uh, the nation splitting apart, uh, Garfield became more passionate about uh, slavery and became more and more of an abolitionist. And that, of course, also was driven, I believe, by his faith, believing that uh, slavery was an unjust thing, according to his faith in God. I think most of us could identify James Garfield as a president, and perhaps most of us realize he was assassinated when he was president. But I don't think hardly any of us know about his Civil War experience, which was fairly extensive. And it was interesting to read your um, your substantive account of it. I was most fascinated by his uh, involvement in the battle in Kentucky around, uh, well, Prestonsburg and, uh, um, and that area. The, was Middle Creek, was that the battle? Yeah, it was. That was a very small battle with a very big impact on Garfield's life. Um, he was a young man, still a young commander, his, his first test in the field of the Civil War, leading a brigade of soldiers against a Confederate general named Humphrey Marshall. And uh, Humphrey Marshall was a West Point-educated officer. He had fought in the war with Mexico. So really, there was no comparison between the two when it came to experience and qualification. And yet, 
here Garfield was in January of 1862 in eastern Kentucky, the far eastern reaches of the state. And on uh, January 10th of 1862, they fought the Battle of Middle Creek, which was a very small-scale battle, but it was a victory for Garfield. And it was a victory that ended up helping him to be promoted to the rank of Brigadier General, Mm -hmm. which in turn helped to open up all sorts of new doors for him. So uh, one might say that the Battle of Middle Creek was crucial in him becoming who he ended up being, which was the President of the United States. You know, I know it's an out-of-the-way place, but I've actually been on that Middle Creek battlefield there. It's it's uh, really a remote site. Um, not a, not too many folks can say that down there in, in uh, eastern Kentucky. Right. It's uh, it's yeah. interesting to now know the story behind that battle uh, through reading your book. It's called James Garfield and the Civil War. We'll put information on uh, our program website about that book and another book you've written, an earlier book called The Battle of Kennesaw Mountain. Now, Kennesaw Mountain is Atlanta, correct? Yeah, it's about uh, 20-some miles uh, northwest of Atlanta. And uh, it was part of William Tecumseh Sherman's Atlanta campaign in the summer of 1864. Um, Many folks know Sherman's name with the March to the Sea, which actually happened late towards the end of 1864. Uh, But before Sherman could launch his March to the Sea, first he had to capture the city of Atlanta, which is what he was doing essentially from May through September of 1864, and Kennesaw Mountain was a part of that. So it was a very strategic battle. The battle for Atlanta is really what we're talking about, correct? Yeah, before he could get to Atlanta itself, Sherman had a number of obstacles he had to overcome. And uh, many of these obstacles he overcame by outflanking the Confederates, marching around their lines. But by late June, uh, Joseph Johnston, the Confederate commander, had his force positioned along these ridges, Kennesaw Mountain, and, and some uh, surrounding ridges around it. And rather than try to outmaneuver them, Sherman decided he was going to launch frontal attacks, which led to a few hours of pretty bloody fighting on the morning of June 27, 1864. And it was a Confederate victory. Um, many have said that it was probably Sherman's biggest tactical mistake of the war, and a lot of soldiers under his command really paid the price for it. But uh, ultimately, Sherman was able to recover from that defeat and uh, still find his way towards Atlanta a few weeks later. In the book, you include a a number of quotations from soldiers regarding uh, their faith in in fighting in the Civil War. Can you outline just a couple of those for us? Well, one that always really stands out to me is um, from a soldier from Ohio. Um, I certainly love Ohio soldiers. I was going to say, surprise, Uh, surprise. (laughs) Yeah, my home state there. And it was Sergeant Nixon Stewart of the 52nd Ohio. And uh, on the morning of June 27th, um, these soldiers have just been told that they're about to make this attack on enemy lines. And uh, I can only imagine the thoughts that would be going through their mind, because these were veteran soldiers, and they fairly well understood what that meant, what launching an attack on enemy lines meant at that point in the war. Um, These attacks were going to be going across open ground, many of them uphill into enemy infantry and artillery fire. So... Uh, certainly, they understood the ramifications of that. And uh, Nixon Stewart wrote about that morning, and he said that when he was contemplating the battle and his role in it, um, he opened up a Bible that his mom gave him when he left for war, and he opened it up to actually uh, one of the Psalms, and he, and he read the line, A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Mm. And he reflected upon that and said that reading those words, the words of the Psalms, and 
and the Bible that his mother gave him helped to give him a sense of calm that carried with him throughout the rest of the day. And his regiment ended up attacking the perhaps strongest point on the Confederate line known as the Dead Angle, where uh, the Confederate line came out to a point, uh, and they had a nice view looking out over a hill towards the advancing Union line. So um, certainly he saw some of the worst fighting at Kennesaw Mountain, and throughout the rest of the day, he had that sense of calm as a result of reading that passage. Very interesting. And you have uh, similar accounts in this book as well. Um, Talk to me about why do you enjoy these historical studies so much? And it isn't history for history's sake. There has to be some application to life today. Well, I enjoy the two topics that I've written about, um, Kennesaw Mountain and and, uh, the battle there and and the story of James Garfield's Civil War career. Um, For the historian in me, they're interesting because they are stories that really aren't all that well known. Um, Garfield's known first and foremost for his presidency and his assassination, not necessarily for his Civil War career. And Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, it's not one of the largest battles of the war, so it doesn't often get a whole lot of attention. Um, But each one of them are fascinating, not just because I think they needed more more works on them and, and more understanding, but uh, they also do offer offer life life lessons as well. And I think that's true, especially with James Garfield. Um, he's a guy I've really come to identify with and and his his rise through life. Um, Garfield did not have an easy life. Uh, he was born into poverty. His dad died when he was two. He tried to go away from home and make a career of working on the canals of Ohio and kept falling into the water, so that didn't work out for him. And ultimately, he turned to education, and that was his passport, if you will, to a better future. And through education and hard work, he pulled himself up through life by the bootstraps, and uh, by the late 1850s, when he was still in his 20s, he was the president of a college. I don't know how many people can say that, but (laughs) they're the president of a a college, essentially a, a prominent school, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, today at Hiram College, at the age of uh, 27. So Garfield really rose through life through through hard work and, and uh, perseverance, and that's something that is seen at many different stages of his journey. He lived a pretty heroic life in some regards, which is, of course, unfortunate that he died in such a tragic manner. Yeah. And with the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, I, I think just the stories of the soldiers and the hardships that they overcame and the principles that they held so dearly give us an understanding of what it was that our ancestors went through, the sacrifices that they made so that we could have the country that we have today. That's our guest, Daniel Vermilia. And the books we mentioned by Daniel are The Battle of Kennesaw Mountain and James Garfield and the Civil War. We'll put links to both books on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. And if you ever walk the battlefields of Gettysburg or Antietam, look for Daniel doing his research. I'm really glad that you are listening today. These interviews are meant to introduce you to people from all walks of life who follow the Lord's calling into some unique work or ministry. And whether you're a new listener or regular, please take the time to browse our website and the archive of past interviews. If you'd like to download any program for later listening, you'll find our podcast on iTunes or use our app for smartphones and tablets making it extra easy to download and listen to any interview anytime. Look for First Person Interview in your app store. And our Facebook page is a great place to leave your comments, facebook.com slash first person interview. 
Now with thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company and to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for First Person. First Person.